Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is musician, entrepreneur, member of Fall Out Boy, Pete Wentz. What's up? How are you? Good to be. Okay, so you got this stadium tour with Green Day and Weezer. How did that come together? Well, so we've always talked about, you know, like, I guess everyone has whatever your ambition is. You always think about, you know, the the office above you or whatever. So we always talked about how do you do a stadium tour? And we played uh, Wrigley last year, which is our hometown. Um, and we've always talked about kind of trying to do like a Monsters of Rock thing. And I think Green Day had talked about it as well. So we, you know, we're all on the same management company. So I think that's what really um, eliminates maybe some of the red tape, makes it like more feasible to do, you know? Um, right. There's a lot of like managing of egos and man you know i mean it's just like it's a lot <laughs> okay. doing it with one band is a lot doing it with three bands is okay like let's go three, back a whole lot you played wrigley yeah uh how'd you do at wrigley uh it was good it was great uh, i mean it was our hometown so i mean uh did you go clean at wrigley we did yeah i mean it's a so whatever everything there's different configurations for everything but yes we went clean so how many and beyond. Uh, so what configuration did you have I think that we did over 30. Okay. And I th- I'm guessing, like, there's probably a way that you can do a configuration where you put people behind you. You know right. what I mean? Like, I guess right. you go into, like, the full Beatles, <laughs> Yankee Chase Stadium, Stadium right, you know right. I mean? Configura- Chase Stadium configuration. But uh, we didn't have people behind us. But, yeah, we did. It was Okay, is out. there something special about Chicago because Chance the Rapper Played a stadium in Chicago, fairly well from the dead. You know, Detroit always talks about its fan base. Is it a very active fan base, or it's just that's where you're from? It's an active fan base. It is where we're from. But I think that and 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 Chance is the one that's a little is different on here. But people play. You know, whether it's Eddie Vedder or whoever play. You know, people have a special connection with. I think Wrigley Field. People have a special connection with Fenway. There's certain right. these. these 
places where people it's bigger than the city it's bigger well, than it's the like team. hollywood bowl yeah, same yeah. thing so people can got- sell out hollywood bowl and not sell out irvine down the street totally and so I think people go there because there's, a, you know, we made a weekend of it. We did a, a pop-up experience there also, which what was What was fun. the pop-up experience? So when we did our album Mania, uh, I always envisioned it as, you know, the idea of having something tangible. Like, I think we live in this world where it's all filled with like this, that kind of non-tangible things, you know, like likes and things like that. And they all go away, disappear in 24 hours or whatever. And I think... Uh, it's counterintuitive, but I think it's interesting to do something that people can hold on to and experience and walk into. And sure, um, you can take pictures of it, but I think it means more to actually be there. So we we created a, a space that was like every song, every song had a room in the space and you walked in and it was like what the album was, but like a physical version of it. Okay, how big was it? It was in, <laughs> so we found a building that they were going to tear down. So it was big, it was massive, but they were like, you can do whatever you want to it because we're going to just tear right, it down right, right. afterwards. Um, so we built walls and kind of created a place. But it was, it was interesting because it was all it became events. But, you know, like it, 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 it was one of those things that's in between a bunch of different worlds or a, d- a bunch of different people's um, specialties. So there was a lot of things that we would... I probably would do differently if I did it again. And there's a part of me that thinks like I would just never do it again because it was just a bigger undertaking than we'd expected. Like we were literally uh, gluing things uh, as people were waiting in line at it, you know? So Okay. You talk about this physical. Did people pay to get in? Uh, yeah, but you could also win. Uh, you could you could you could win tickets. People paid to get in, and then I think there was like a package uh, for the show where like you right it was included. included. How far was it from Wrigley? It was uh, I would say it was t- like ten minutes, twelve minutes, but it was like Chicago minutes, not Los right, Angeles right. minutes. You know what I mean? So it you was know, like, it's funny it was, because you know, people are expected on time in New York, and you think how dense it is. Whereas in L.A. You know, because of the traffic, you never know. Yeah, I'm. I'm. How late I was to this podcast is how late I am to literally everything in my life, which is unfortunate. Except that I'm not late to my. I have. A, I have. A, just so I know, it was 15 minutes. Just yeah, for yeah. the people listening. Yeah, in that's around. about what I am, and I don't factor in. So I factor in like, okay, five minutes to shower, you know, whatever. But I don't factor in those in between minutes, like where you're toweling off or you're like looking for your keys. Those are these in between minutes that really add up, and those become the 15 minutes for me every single time. Well, the only thing is certain people have a thing where they're always on time and it could be the most powerful person because I hate when I'm on time and I'm the greeting committee Yes, because like, a, you know, if a party's at seven, you can't get there at seven or, you know, there's a dinner and I get there and I'm waiting and I got to uh, talk, but then there's some really heavy players notoriously always, get on time and you feel time. really shitty if you're late. Totally. And I think that it's, it's like, to me, uh, I, I remember being in a meeting. Uh, I was in a meeting that was like a pitch for a movie or something like that. I can't remember. This was like years ago. And I looked over and there was like, you know, like a a box of like the spread you guys got, but like it was like Coke and Sprite and whatever. And then there was one tab uh, uh, for people who don't know, like tab, the, the cola or whatever. That and was the original diet drink from Coca-Cola. Totally. And this, I'm talking, this is like 10 years ago. So right. this wasn't big. Like these things had to be out of print since you know, the <laughs> 80s or whatever. And I was like, that's so odd. Like they would have one and we're in the meeting uh, and the billionaire in the meeting goes over and gets the tab. And I was like, got it. So if you're a billionaire, you can get a tab well, set hate, in the meeting. I hate to talk this way, but you know, it's like when you fly on the private jet and you didn't book it. Totally. 
there are certain seats. If you get on a seat, they go, no, you can't sit you can't in that sit seat. You can't sit in that seat. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Just thrilled that you're on. Okay, what would you do differently if you did the installation again? Um, I would allow more time for the build-out. I would... I think that this is one of those things where you can't cut corners. I think notoriously in the music business, people really people either under vastly underspend or vastly overspend. And I think in this case, you should lean air on overspending because I think people having the experience are going to come out and they talk about it and they'll talk about how, oh, like it looked like it was this, but it was actually made out of cardboard and it was super <laughs> cheap and it was falling apart. Or they walk out and they're like, oh my God, that was the best thing I've ever experienced. And there's you can't really like put a figure on people walking out and having that experience. It's hard to like sit there and like say that in a marketing meeting or, you know, like have a pie chart and like be like, well, this amount of people are going to say this about it. Cause it's a real feeling. It's like authentic, you know? Um, so I think I would err on spending more. And I think that I would, uh, and I don't know that we had any, um, can't remember if we had any ad space or any like it was put on by anybody or something like that. It might have been. I would have none of that. I would have no signage. Okay. What's your general philosophy on sponsorship? I think sponsorship can be great when someone gives you the money and says, listen, we have no idea what to do with this. We trust your vision. We trust your brand. We trust what you're going to do with this. And that's why we're coming to you. I think that is great. I think when you get into the like, and we need you to like meet like seven people and we need you to like change this messaging and like that lyric doesn't work for us. Uh, it's not worth it to me because then at that point it like jeopardizes and changes your art. It changes what your vision was going to be for it. You know what I mean? So, like, so uh, have you worked with brands? Yeah, for sure. Never on like a, you know, shake it like a Polaroid picture level. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, uh, but we've had tour sponsors this tour has a harley davidson sponsor and i think that like especially when a brand makes sense with you like to me i'm always like kids are smart you know what i mean kids can smart can spot when somebody's like doing something that doesn't really fit in with what they normally do you know what i mean and so i think if you do something if, if there's things that i'm like i love this like uh uh, let me think. Um, like I love salt and straw, the ice cream. I've been okay. trying to like do something with them forever, <laughs> you know, and I haven't been able to do something with them, but I like it. So it would make sense. So it's like, whatever you do would, would actually be like in line with it. And I think it's when you step out of line is when people are like, Ooh, that feels a little weird or it feels like, you know, and I, okay. But it's well known. If you do anything, you're getting money, whether you're putting it back into the show or you're yes. putting it in your pocket. 100%. Do you think that has any negative effect credibility wise on your fans? I don't think that it does anymore. I think that this generation has grown up with seeing people like really shill. And I think that the difference is, uh, is knowing that you like, you know, like they saw us and we would have like cell phones in our videos and stuff like that. And I'm like, this literally is to pay for the video. Like we're not walking away. We're, we're still losing money making this video. You know what I mean? And, and I think we, we as a band and I think uh, other artists kind of like educated that, you know, um, I think that there's a difference between like doing a commercial for something that you don't believe in and, and taking money that is going to enhance your art and make enhance okay. the fan experience. Let's go, let's go to the Led Zeppelin example when they launched this new Cadillac. For $10 million, would you do anything? 
Or would you $10 say, million dollars. okay, that's what I mean, but it's almost like an indecent yeah, yeah. proposal. Yeah, yeah. Would you do anything for $10 million or at some point your, your credibility says no? No. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. I don't think you can do anything for $10 okay, million. Okay, let's switch it to politics. Sure. Whatever side, would you go on the record when it comes to candidates or political issues? Would I go on the record? Um, sure. I think that this, we're in a time where you should st- – Step out and not necessarily step out, but you should be okay with who you are and authentic with who you are. The funniest thing to me, speaking of that, is like the other day I saw that like, you know, Vince Vaughn is all over the place and it was like, you know, people freaking out that he'd like met Trump and, you know, and I'm like, I think this guy's like a pretty known libertarian for the past like 20 or 30 years. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it shouldn't be shocking. You know what I mean? I think that when people don't know and then they see you're doing something and they're like, oh, that doesn't stand in line with like what that guy has been doing for the past 20 years. That can be a little weird, I think. Okay, but how about the issue, and I've dealt with people who shy away from this, Let's if you choose either side, if you're an right. actor, you're playing a role. Right. Music done right, it's yourself, right. okay? So would you be worried about alienating, or potentially alienating part of your personality, part of your audio, uh, fan base, excuse me? Sure. I mean, you, you can you can worry about it, but at the same time, I think that we live... So we live in a time of, like, extreme inauthenticity. You know what I mean? We live in a time where people are like, who they are on Instagram is not who they are. And those experiences... Like, you know, I saw my friend who was just, like, at a cabin in the snow, and it looked beautiful. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so jealous. And, like, it looked magical. And he came back, and he was like, it was rats. It was disgusting. <laughs> he was like, I will never go back there. And I'm like, oh, it's because it's the exact opposite of what it looked like. You know what I mean? And so... I think that being authentic to who you are actually cuts through right now. I think you see that with Billie Eilish. You see it with Kanye. You see it with Lana Del Rey. I think that, and yeah, you are going to, It yeah, I'm sure it will tick off some people. We live in like a polarized world right now. But like, I think that you have to be, I think that you what you gain from being who you are massive is massively overwhelms what you would lose. Okay. Are you ever creating in whatever field and worried about the audience response? Not whether they're going to like it or not like it, but whether they're going to react negatively where it's coming from. I'm a hyper anxious person that is goes off the rails when I'm giving my Starbucks order. You know what I mean? Like when I'm stepping up the next person in line, I feel like I'm going to lose it because I'm like, you're going to blow it. You're going to say it wrong. They're going to, you're going to take too long. The person behind you is going to freak out. Um, so yeah, I worry about it, all that stuff all the time, but on some level, I think that it's really, it's really important to push ahead and push and push the envelope. I think that like, when you look back at like, for me, at least when I look back at like Clash Records or Metallica or whatever, you know, like everybody has a different, you know, like uh, uh, in, inception or inspiration, like in, in, yeah, or starting point. You know what I mean? Yeah, so like sure. you, 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 when you think back on it, um, Clash changing was hard. You know what I mean? It's hard for fans. Like when you fall in love with something, it's hard when they change and move of course. to the next thing. But I think sometimes it makes it easier when you're as an adult or an older person, like going back and listening to those things, you're like, God bless that this changed because like, it's easier for me to like understand and appreciate now. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I, yeah, I, I think we do think about it and worry about that. But at the same time, I think you can't like live or die by it. You know, you have to, right. Okay, let's go back to the installation. Are you the type of person I was talking actually with Irving Azoff at an Eagles show with about Don Henley? Don Henley needs to get it exactly right. Anybody's right. work with him, it's got to be his thing. Right. And Irving said, 
It's that 1% that makes a huge difference. You were talking about the perception of the right. audience. But what I ask you, is that your personality where it's got to be exactly right or do you let shit go? Um, I It is my personality to, to get it exactly right in the way that like, you know, I was just playing tennis today and my coach was like, you got like destroyed by this guy. And I was like, but my strokes look like, like if they hired me to do play a tennis player in a movie, they wouldn't have to f have a double. You know what I mean? Like they would just be like, his strokes look pretty good. You know, he looks like he could have played in college. Um, but I think that everyone, you know, like growing up and watching the way the internet has changed and the way that, you know, entertainment has changed. There's a danger in making, you know, Chinese democracy or whatever the record is, you know, right. like where you, you cook it for too long and you like muddy it, you know what I mean? Like you put too many colors in and you muddy it. So I think that having a sounding board or like, uh, being okay with things going out and being like, well, it's not perfect, but you know, like it needs to be done. You know what I mean? Okay. But, but let's talk on a different thing. Let's just assume, uh, I guess what I'm talking about is that edge, that fine edge. Because certainly some of the greatest right. records of all time were cut in a matter of minutes. Right. Okay. Are you someone, it's like me, I'm a big skier. When every, when the skis, everything is really right, um, that is important to me. Right. Okay. If I go out and the skis are dull and it's an icy day, it's right. going to ruin my day. Right. So the question becomes, I guess, let's go back to your Starbucks order. Um, is it an OCD thing? I don't think it's an OCD thing. It's more of a, um, maybe it is an OCD thing, but it's more. Well, let me ask you this on the OCD. Yeah. You're home alone. Yes. You leave. Yes. You ever say, holy fuck, did I set the alarm? Did I leave the, uh, the, uh, uh, the grill on, whatever? Yeah. Yes, I do. But more so my stuff is like, um, when you're at a, uh, you know, like I was just at a coffee place and they have the screen where you like sign your right. finger on it. Right. And I'm sitting there in my head and I'm like, I mean, we've evolved to the point where we have these screens and these smartphones and everything. And I'm like, but like, what is the germ level on these screens that you have to sign? Like, it's got to be like a million fingers on there. And it like just, <laughs> it freaked me out. You well, know, what yeah, I, mean? I know they did that study that you're not going to get any disease from a toilet seat. But as far as, you know, the uh, sign in on the iPad, I'm not really sure. But, uh, okay. But is it a social anxiety? I mean, what is, when you, when you're uptight about giving your order, what, why do you think you're uptight? I think that I am, I'm thinking about the person behind me and that I'm taking too long and that, um, am I saying it right? And okay. Cause you, you came in here immediately fall into a groove. You're very easy to talk to. Okay. <laughs> Let's just assume we take you to somewhere where people don't know who you are, your sure. name, your fallout boy. Sure. And I say, okay, we're going to go to a party with 20 people. I, I can't go, but you're going to go alone. You're going to say, fine. You say, man, I'm not going alone. I will probably be like, yeah, that'll be great. And then like, uh, like an hour before I'll tell you, I can't get a babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which may be the truth. Maybe won't be the truth. <laughs> okay. You buy something at Best Buy. No one goes to Best Buy, but you do. Right. It's fucked up. Okay. Yeah. Came that way. You uptight about returning it? Absolutely. I don't okay, want that competition. This is, o this yeah, is OCD. The, yeah, I don't want this, that competition at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is all treatment. But let's go back to the uh, stadium show. Yeah. Was it the manager's idea or was it in the air? Or was it one of the bands? It was, I think it came from the bands. I think the managers were like, we can make this happen. 
Um, I think it would be a would have been a lot harder to get it together without having the same manager because you can like do like vertical moving, you know. Whereas right. otherwise, it's like this font is this size, and like you you would not believe the stuff that guys and bands will argue about. Oh, you that's know what I mean? why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it came from the bands. Like it was organic and and i knew rivers and we'd obviously grown up on on green day um and so yeah i mean i i and listen like it's like you you get asked like where you want to ski like everybody has like a like a ultimate version of like what it is like for a guys in or girls in rock bands it's like a stadium you know festival like these are like these things that you it's like playing madison's regard yeah absolutely you got it you got to do it you know right, what i mean right. like you want to do it you know what i mean and so yeah it's it's just about like making it work you know what i mean okay so your build in all the billing i've seen is the middle act mm -hmm. was that hard to work out irrelevant of the fonts <laughs> Uh, that we were play that we were in the middle or yeah. that we were, was it hard to work out? Um, um, yeah, no, I think that we, yeah. I mean, it's hard to work out in the way that like we haven't supported any band in a really long time. So right. it's just a different thing, you know? Um, but every time you come back to it, you, you know, like every time I like freak out about anything, like my manager will send me like monsters of rock posters, like pictures of monsters of rock right. posters. And you're like, these guys did this. And this was like an epic, epic, epic thing that was bigger than, all the bands, you know, and if you're thinking about like who's like one or two of four on those, it's like pretty insane, you know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah, you're you're making things work for the the greater good, you know what I mean? And okay, is there anything where okay, I'm gonna go out and blow away the headliner? Sure, of course. I mean, there's a hundred percent of that. I mean, in the way that like you want it. Okay, so this is this is what it is. So we played the we played at the at the whiskey, the right. three of us played. I was out of three town. bands. Yeah, three bands played, and there's part of you that's like, I want to do this, and like, it's different and whatever. And then you know, you're I'm watching Green Day play, and I'm like, damn, but they have these songs. And we played the probably the best small club show that we could have ever played. And when Green Day played, they had these songs that were like baked in people's cultural DNA. Right. You know what I mean, and it was like seeing Basket Case in this tiny room. I'm just like. It's just bigger. It's just the difference between like opening like a bottle of wine that's like from the basement of a, a cellar of a French chateau versus like Screaming Eagle. It's just like, it's just different. You know what I mean? Like it's had like 50, 40 uh, more uh, years uh, of it. You know what Going I mean? to the minor yeah. point, are you into wine? I do like wine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But are you into, you know, you're also collecting, you mentioned Screaming Eagle. Okay. I, I, I've gone to tastings. I've, I'm not like, uh, no, I'm not like a real collector of wine. Okay, do you yeah. collect anything? Uh, yeah. I um, let me think. What are what are some things that I'm like really into collecting? I have like all my '80s toys. Uh, oh, really? You yeah. have the original ones, or you rebought them? No, they're all the originals. I'm like a kind of like a whoa, psycho. Whoa, 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 whoa! What, what, like literally from age five, seven, that kind of toy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, your parents. You have any brothers or sisters? I do have a younger brother and younger sister. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. how big was the house? It was, I guess I grew up in a upper middle class and it was... I guess my mother, yeah. she threw all my shit out. My parents tried to and I would like lose my mind. You know what I mean? Like it was like, and there, and I probably should be in some kind of therapy session for this, but I would like, you know, like it, and eventually they just packed it all. When they moved out of the house and moved downsized, they, um, 
they just shipped it all to me in boxes. Okay, so other than your toys, what do you have from your childhood? Oh man, uh, I have a blanket that I suppose I have all my baseball cards, which are worth nothing. My mother threw them out, yeah, yeah, yeah. and those would be worth something. Yeah, so I'm from like I got my baseball cards are from like the junk era. So like every now I am from the good yeah, the era. Real, yeah, so uh, that Ken Griffey is just not worth anything. Right, right. You know? um, what else do I have that I collect? Uh, I collected vinyl for a little bit, but nothing that crazy. Okay, okay. Can you get rid of any of this shit? What is it, Marie Kondo? Is that what it is? Fuck her! Because you know Marie Kondo is now selling a product, so she's that's telling the, us to. Slip but that's down. the whole thing, right? That's like the dream, right? You get somebody to get rid of everything, and then like you all of a sudden have a brand, so you got to like sell the merch. Although I will say, I don't want to you know, uh, you know make light of all the people's houses burned down, but I am a real hoarder, and sometimes I say, well, you know, as long as I had my computer. If the whole house burned down, it might be liberating. Right, mine would definitely be, mine would definitely be liberating, uh, except for I gotta get my kids' stuff out. But um, there's definitely a point where, like, I was like, I'm just a, I'm just a collector, and then I like looked at pictures of the stuff. People were showing me pictures of the, my stuff, and it like looks like hoarder stuff. You know what I mean? And I guess that's how it it how it switches from collecting to hoarding is that like you don't know right like there's like some like it's in your some, it's in your dna it's and there's in, some dysmorphia there's some dysmorphia right because right. you look at it and it doesn't look like well, i used to look i say okay it may look like junk to you but i know where literally everything is right. and if you reorganize that i won't know where it is yeah. and everything has sentimental i just moved and for the first time ever i threw a lot of stuff out stuff that i would never throw out and the cliche unfortunately is true in that you don't miss it but there's a couple of things I threw out a few years ago that I still miss. So how big a house do you live in? How many square feet is it? I don't know. It's all in the garage. Okay, that's it. So wait, all but your I can't, shit. But I, can't, your... but I can't park in the garage. Okay, and it's a how many car garage? Three car garage. So the three, uh, three things are full of your shit. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And then there's a storage unit. <laughs> okay, how far, how far away is the storage unit? I have a close one and a far one. <laughs> Okay, you you go on the road, okay? Yes, yes. There's laminates, there's uh, all kinds of stuff. You save all that shit? A lot of it I save, yeah. I saved every laminate. Okay, so we're in the house. What other th How easy is it for you to throw out anything? Like the newspaper. I have an issue with other people throwing my things away. Oh, man. This is my girlfriend. I, uh, huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. What are you doing? I, but, exactly. I, but I I can do it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I have a problem with other people like making the call. I have a huge problem and I want to end. It's like I it's, get it's a It's probably not super healthy, right? There's different. I see a special doctor for this. Okay. okay? You ever been in therapy? Oh, yeah. For okay. sure. Okay. Well, it turns out regular therapy doesn't work for OCD. Okay. You have to go to a special person, and it's called exposure therapy. Oh, Okay, yes. And there's two things. I don't know if you have any issues. Like one of my issues is if you say, if one of those cans has like big skulls and bones on it, it's very hard for me to touch that. Mm. So first you work up your way to touch that. Then hoarding, they actually send somebody to my house once to teach me how to get rid of it. Right. Okay. And uh, there's definitely treatment for it. It's, you know, it comes down to two things. One, the OCD thing is it crippling your life. B, when it comes to the stuff, whether you have enough space for it. Sounds right. like you do. 
I mean, kind of. I mean, I definitely was told that our garage was dangerous the other day. Dangerous? Why? Something might fall? I guess that something might tip on somebody or fall or something. Yeah. Yeah. I had that experience after the earthquake. You weren't in LA, the earthquake. No. Living in Santa Monica really shook. And I had my vinyl records all the way up to the ceiling. And I said, and I moved. I was just afraid if they fall, if anybody's lying on the couch, going to kill them. Right. But, uh, okay, let's go back to the tennis. Yeah. You play tennis at a club or you have a court or what? Uh, I don't have a court. I play like at uh, either public courts or I play, like there's this one in the valley that's, it's like just barely kind of in the valley that's called Weddington that is like, it's like public, but you pay. So then you don't have to like wait. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. So it's like. How good a tennis player are you? Oh man, so they have levels. Uh, I guess I would be a four zero or a four five. No, four zero for sure. Not a for 4-5. explain what the levels are for those people unsophisticated. Um, it goes through like whether you're able to just hit return a shot, or whether you're able to know the correct positioning, or whether you're able to hit an aggressive offensive shot. And like for instance, like like Gavin Gavin Rossdale, I right. think he's probably like a four five or five, right. if not beyond. You know what's what I mean? the lowest? I don't know. I guess one, maybe, or okay. point five. Yeah, but like I think after you get past maybe six or seven, maybe it goes to a professional at some point. Sorry, so how often do you play? Oh boy, I don't know if I need to go on record if somebody's listening that I tell that I go to like that I'm you know in meetings. <laughs> I play too much. You play every day. I play close to every day. Yeah. Okay. What if you miss a couple of days? You cool with that, or you have a Jones to get back out there? I definitely have a Jones to get back out there. And yeah, did yeah. you play tennis as a kid? I did, not very well, but yeah, I did. Okay, how'd you get back into it? I just played it goofing around, and I played, and it's just one of those ones that like is, is addictive, the way, whether it would be skiing, you know, like once you, you get back in the rhythm, you're like, oh, I could just do this every day. Like if somebody was like, you could just do this no, every day. No, I used to ski every day, and over Christmas, I skied uh, 26 out of 27 days. And I always thought, you get a fine edge when you do it every day, and that fine edge is very rewarding. Person may not even tell by looking at you, but like with this, you know you can get to that shot. Totally. You know you can get it back over the net. Totally. Because once you're in that groove and you go out and play or ski when you're not in that groove, it's depressing. Totally. Because you know, people say, oh, you look good. I say, no, I know I can do this and, I, and I'm totally. mad that I can't. And tennis is one of those like really messed up ones where like you'll like, that's similar to golf, but I think golf is the more extreme version where you like will play one day and you're the best player you've ever been and then you play the next day and you're like literally the worst you know what i mean it's like one of those like super frustrating right certainly uh mental. golf is that okay so you how'd you get back into tennis i just like started playing and i just played a couple times goofing around and then like i just got super into it i think i had a ton of time and i got super into it and then i like went and started playing on tour when we were like in australia i played like with some uh of like the aussie pro women and basically like you you go from being like <laughs> i watch it on tv maybe i could like do this and then like i they this this one woman hit literally she was like i'll serve one real one to you and it was like i just tried to move out of the way you know what i mean like, it wasn't <laughs> right. even like about returning it and i was like oh okay so like this is like not in the cards of like Play well, it's like beyond. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to play a lot of golf, was never good. And you go out with someone who really knows how to play. They're just not hitting the ball. They're working it totally. to get the spin to be at that elite level. I mean, obviously, Michael Jordan could never play baseball. So let's go back to the beginning. So you grew up where in the Chicago area? The north side, like the suburbs of Chicago, no, which Wilmette, help? Winnetka. We basically grew up where like, so like Breakfast Club was set at my my high school. 
Um, but did they film it or just set in terms of? Theory? No, it was filmed there. Okay. And so like basically every John Hughes movie was set in Shermerville or whatever. And Shermerville is not a real place, but there was a road that ran between me and the guitarist uh, Joe of, of our band's town. His town and my town, and it was Shermer Road. And so, like, everything was based on that. Like, Home Alone was, like, one block from his house, which is where we had band practice. But it's basically, like, this, like, it's all those, every one of those movies is basically, like, that our town. You know what I mean? Okay, so you grow up. You're the oldest kid. Your parents have all their hopes and dreams invested in you? I think that I had, mm, I don't know about that, but I think that my parents had, like, um, I was like the experiment, you know what I mean? So I was the one that like... You were an experiment because of their parenting style or by nature of being the first kid? Uh, both, I think, in the way that like... Okay, well, let's go back. Yeah, yeah. Your parents had you, how old or young were they? Uh, my dad was 30, and I think my mom was 29. Okay, so that's all reasonable. And is your mother working outside the house at that point? She was before I before the young prince came along. And okay. Then, <laughs> and then I think... Okay, and your father did what for a living? He was a lawyer. Uh, okay. He's still a lawyer. Still practicing. Okay. Yeah. You refer to yourself as the young prince. Okay. <laughs> My mom called me the uh, when I was born the Prince of Edgewater. We lived in this uh, part of Chicago called Edgewater Village, I think, and so she called me the Prince of Edgewater. But it was it humorous, or she really treated you like a prince? I think it was humorous. I don't. I'm, I don't think my mom really. I don't know. I'm not really sure. You know what I mean? Like I. I look at all these pictures of me. When I was little, and I'm in yellow in all of them, and she was like, uh, you know, like pe people just didn't have people didn't go and look at what their baby was beforehand unless there was a problem. Like you wouldn't, right, right, you just wouldn't, you know what I mean? And so like we just had yellow because we thought you might be a girl. You just never know. And I was like, yellow is such an interesting color to put a baby in a bunch of time, <laughs> a bunch of the time, you know. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink that's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so if I had your two siblings here, would they say you were the prince and the favored child, or they'd say, oh, we're all equal? <laughs> I think that my 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 sister, um, in some ways, because it's two boys and a girl, and I think that she got um, some special attention. She was uh, she was different. She was also like of us was the was the easiest. You know what I mean? She's I think the youngest. She's the middle. Okay, and she was just she was just easy. You know right? what I mean? Yeah, I, I, got I don't it. think I would. I think I was like pretty. I was like difficult in the way that like I'd dye my hair and I'd do a band and I, you know, like it was just all, you know, like I left college, you know what I mean? Like it was just all like, I yeah, wasn't I, easy. You were you know breaking I mean? the mold. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? And it, so I think what, that was tough as the first. You okay. Know? What is, what do your sister and brother do all day now? Uh, my sister studied family sociology maybe. Um, and she is a stay at home mom in Chicago with okay. three kids. And my brother is a fine artist in New York. Successfully. Yeah, I think so. I mean, off I think the parents' payroll. Off the parents' payroll. I think he. Uh, I don't really like. It's the same thing as like. I have a little bit of a, a of a guy in a band's perception of like what my dad and my brother do because they like explain it to me and I'm like I kind of understand but I don't really because he work he does marketing as well you know what I mean so okay. like, I don't really fully understand. It. Okay, yeah. and you're close with your family and your siblings. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So you grow up. Are you good in school or bad? I was always like a very like uh, I had a like um not living up to your potential kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yep. yep. It was like a lot of like test well doesn't do a lot. Oh, okay, that, that doesn't apply himself. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that. And you're like the you know the king of the class, the class clown, an outcast. Where do you fit in? Mm, I never felt like I fit in where I lived. Um, I don't, yeah, I just, I don't feel like I really looked like anybody and I didn't really like understand the way people kind of like did their thing. And my family was always the family that like, we were like a little bit like the weird family. Like my parents would have us go eat at like Ethiopian restaurants and stuff like that. And I was just like, I just want to eat fucking McDonald's. You know what I mean? It's like, just want it to be normal, you know? And now I appreciate it and I understand it. But like at the time it was like, um, yeah. And so I don't, I don't think I really felt like I fit in. I think I was like probably always trying to goof around to fit in maybe. And did you have friends? Yeah, I kind of had friends. I kind of was friends with everybody. You know what I mean? Like, right. but like not, I don't, I didn't have like close friends until I was a little older. Okay. So were they playing music in your house? My dad played a ton of like, um, like temptations and a ton of like Fogarty and like, it was like, uh, anything that was under like a lot of the stuff was under like the like the oldies station i guess in right. my town um and like my first concert he took me to was jimmy buffett you know what i mean which is <laughs> so how did you wild. like the parrot heads i was i i think i just wanted to go to a concert so bad that it was like it was pretty cool and i thought like margaritaville and like cheeseburger in paradise were like pretty catchy songs yeah, right. so um 
Yeah, because I think I just wanted to go to a concert. My dad was like, I'll take you to this one. And I was like, How uh, old were you? I want to say I was like 10 or 11. Okay. And then like the summer that I was 14. Which was what year? Or 13, which was, so I graduated in 97. So you were born like in uh, 79. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is the early 90s. Yeah. So this summer, uh, basically all at the same, similar timing, maybe not the whole summer, but like uh, we were at this lake house uh, that my parents would go to. Um, it was like kind of like a group lake house. I don't really know how to explain it. It's like family camp or something like that. Okay. You know what I mean? And I water skied, but like the older kids all slalom water skied and all I wanted to do was slalom because it looked like a juicy fruit commercial. Also, Terminator 2 came out um, and all I wanted to do was see that movie but it was rated R and I think my parents didn't let me and then I think it was that summer or the next summer Metallica Guns N' Roses went on a stadium tour and all I wanted to do was go to the show and my parents were like, you're not going to that show. So it was like this like, it was all wrapped, uh, to me it's all wrapped up in the same thing kind of, you know? Okay. Did you have the Metallica and Guns N' Roses albums? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, and so I had I had the Guns N' Roses album in my mom's car on tape, and I would have to sit there and turn down the squares because I knew when the squares were coming. And this is when they had like Get in the Ring, like, and I had that whole Get in the Ring speech. You know, like uh, you'd be ripping off the kids to pay their hard-earned money to read about the bands they want to know about, talking shit, printing lies. You want to antagonize me? Antagonize me, motherfucker! You know, like I had that whole speech memorized, and I would be turning it up and down, like trying to like get the squares, like basically like you know. To put hidden cough buttons for my mom in the car because I was like, this music's cool, it's cool, trust me, don't worry. But then I would like have to like, you know, self-edit it. Okay, but how did you get into Metallica, Guns N' Roses? Um, so I, I had a group of friends that like skateboarded and and that kind of stuff, and I don't know how they got into it. I think there might have been an older brother, um, Nick Poole and his older brother, maybe Alex Poole. I think maybe like made a tape. This is back. I don't know. Back in the days, people right? would make tapes and it would have a bunch of different songs on it. And uh, you know, like Metallica and Slayer and this kind okay, of stuff. But did your parents buy you albums or was it mostly these tapes? <sighs> that was those tapes. And I don't think my parents, like my parents would not buy me an album like that. I don't think. So did they buy you any albums? <sighs> Man, did they buy me? I think that there was like. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was like. Um, like R&B stuff or like stuff that like my parents would also listen to was okay for, to be bought. But like, I I don't even think, I don't even know if it came into like, I don't even know. And this is weird because like, this is not how people, and I'm a, I'm a parent of three. This is not how people parent anymore. But like, I don't, I think I might've been nervous to ask my parents for it. Or like, I just expected that they were, it was going to be a no. So I just didn't even, like, it wasn't even in the like, wheelhouse like it wasn't like it would never i would never think to ask I okay think. so those are all hard-edged acts was that yeah. the only music you were into at the time for sure and then i got even harder i got into punk rock and i got into like death metal and like okay okay so you never went to the guns and roses metallica tour you no know, i went to guns and roses at dodger stadium maybe two years ago <laughs> and it was amazing because it was like all these people that had kind of like um been like stuck and frozen in time it felt like you know what i mean and i was one of them you know what i mean because like you're in the merch and it just kind of like looked like you would just like come out from underground and you're like guns and roses still around in 2017 or whatever i always say I man i saw guns and roses when they played a week at the forum after use your illusion you know one and two came out and that was still when they were coming on hours late and they were right. phenomenal but like when i go to see the stones now 
Well, when I when the Stones first started doing really the stadium tours, whatever, like a couple of decades ago, I always thought it was the people who were afraid to go the first time. Right. It was too dangerous. Right. Now they had leather jackets. Right. Was that like going to the Guns N' Roses show? I think that the Guns N' Roses show was a little different in the way that because they went away for so long so i think right. a lot of people were like i'll never see him again you know and and it was people who would like and i think in a weird way it kind of like you could speak about it in in our band like having two two different portions of our career because there was a lot of people like me who was like just too young or told that you couldn't go right. or something and then you came and i think that the way i experienced it was like and the music and art has a funny way of doing this where we're like it tricks you like where i was like experiencing it as a 14 year old you know what i mean so i'm sitting there and i'm in the crowd and like I can't remember. I went with like four people and like some of them were like, I don't know. This is like this kind of goofy or whatever. But for me, it was just like wish fulfillment. I was like, oh, okay. Like, this okay. Is, I didn't you know? want to go. My friends are the agents, et cetera. I didn't want to go a, because Izzy wasn't in the act. And two, I had good memories. I didn't want my, me there are right. a number of acts like that. I won't go see again. So, okay. You have those things. You don't go to the show. Did you grow up playing, taking piano lessons or any of that shit? I grew up taking piano lessons. I didn't want to do it. I quit. Uh, my mom was like, you're going to regret this. And like, it's the like stereotypical, I definitely regret it. Um, How long did you uh, take piano lessons for? I took four or five years. Oh, and, that's a while. Yeah. But I, I'll be honest, it, it, it never got to the point. And like, I, I see these piano teachers now and I have to give like a huge, huge shout out is, uh, and maybe they existed. They just, I don't think existed maybe where I was, but, uh, it's fun now. Like I, you know, like my kids do like Imagine Dragons and, and, and Star Wars song, you know what right. I mean? Like, it's like, they do like fun things and real things and they're reading music and it's like making it fun and making it relatable. You know, like, I don't think it was at the, the way I was doing it was like not super relatable, just sitting there doing scales and, you know, I don't know. Can you still read music? I could read music for piano. I can't read music for guitar. Or bass. Okay. So when do you make the switch? When do you start picking up the bass or whatever you pick up? <laughs> bass is a funny one because it's the instrument that like people always need bassists and it's always the one that like people before there, everyone was like, you know, like a DJ, people were like, oh, I could probably play that one. It's only got four strings. And I right. think I was like, you know, my friends were doing a punk band and I was like, sure, this one's got, this one seems easier to learn. You know what I mean? Okay. So they decided to do a band before you actually played the bass. Yeah, I mean, definitely. This wasn't Fallout Boy, but it was other punk bands and whatever. Okay, and you were yeah. how old? 14, 15. Okay, so what did you say? Mom and dad, I need a bass because I got to be in this punk band? No, no, no. It was like so scrappy then where it was just like you were trading and you were borrowing and the older brothers had things and you know what I mean? Like it was like, no, for sure. I, I think my parents actually would have been supportive of me having a musical instrument of some kind. But I think this was like my thing, you know, like or whatever, put quotes right. around it, but it was like mine. So I just wanted to do it my way. Uh, okay. So you learned on the fly, you formed oh. the band first and then you learned how to play? Yeah, I learned uh, I, I learned how to play like in, in the practices. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, you know, I could play the guitar. I can't imagine playing the bass, especially fretless bass. Right. So That's... how long did it take for you to say, okay, I kind of understand this? We're getting there still, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you ever? I mean, Lars went back for uh, drum lessons long into Metallica's career. Did you ever go to professional or try listen to records, try to replicate and learn from people who were pros? Yeah, for sure. And like for me, like a lot of like metronome work and 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 timing and and playing things that 
aren't in the wheelhouse of Fall Out Boy to kind of like figure some of that out. And like, honestly, with Patrick, our singer, like he's um, so uh, preternaturally musically gifted. Like it's just, to me, off the charts bizarre. It's like when you just, somebody, you know, like throws a ball and you're like, oh, he just like knows how to do it. He does that with like every instrument kind of, you know, whatever. Um, he'll help me with stuff. You know what I mean? He's okay. really. So now you're playing in punk bands. You're in high school. Yeah. Is it the type of thing where it's extracurricular or is it impinging on your studies? Uh, I didn't care about my studies in high school. Yeah, but you had at, the at parents all. who cared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they sent me to a <laughs> they sent me to a boot camp in um New Hampshire. Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa! How old were you when you went to the boot camp? I think this all happened around fourteen, fifteen. Okay, yeah. and what was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back that made them send you to the boot camp? I think it was missing like day eighty one at school, something like that. I'd like okay. When I went to lot. school, it was like a police state, and if you didn't go and you didn't, they called your house. Yeah, this was like one of those ones where you could figure out all these different ways to like kind of. Uh, There's ways to game it. I think at the time, like where you could build up your free periods and you can. I mean, I have okay, all, whatever, kind, you made all kinds work. of tricks. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. and this was regular public high school. This was public high school. And then how this many... was my last year at public high school, though. Okay, so for was... three years it worked. For no, because this is like age fourteen, fifteen. So this was one year. Okay, that's what I thought. So it's your you're out of junior high. You're in high school. Yeah, yeah. Okay, was this out of the blue, or were they trying to discipline you first? Oh, I'm sure they were disciplining me. Like my parents were pretty pretty good about discipline or they were pretty you know straight and narrow but at the same time like my dad was the kind of guy that would be like at our we played at this play this venue in uh chicago called the fireside bowl which is a bowling alley but they would kind of like let shows happen but the guy was pissed that shows happened there which is like all these great venues in chicago like the right. guy like regrettably would was tolerate. doing shows yeah yeah somebody um, would come in and say hey i can increase your business then yeah, it got yeah, out of hand totally but my dad would be at all these shows with like the tie in the back. You oh, know really? What I mean? Yeah, which is pretty cool. My father came to one of my little league games. I mean, he had virtues, but supported me in my dreams by showing up never. Okay. So in yeah, any yeah. event, okay, why? What did they say when they were going to send you to New Hampshire? Um, I think it was like, you know, like it was like we talked about, like it was like you know getting me back on the straight and narrow kind. But of, you, you know didn't want to get back. The street, no, 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 and like now it's easy to like look back and be like, Well, it's fine because you were taking these, these, these turns because you're doing art and you want to do this or that. But like, I think that that had it gone a different way, they'd be like, This is this was the turning point when we could have gotten you back, you know what <laughs> I mean? So, how long did you go to New Hampshire for? I think I was there a month, maybe it was like ridiculous. It was ridiculous like ridiculous in what way, you know, those giant like. Gatorade bottles, yeah. the ones that like they have for teams yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like one day they would have you dig a hole and put it in the ground, and then the next day they would di have you dig it up and take it out of the Sisyphus. Ground. That sounds terrible. Yeah, like just like no, you know, like just kind of like ridiculous. Okay, how many other kids were there? Oh, I would say that there was like a hundred, maybe. Oh, boys and girls or just boys? Boys and girls is co-ed, but you were only with boys. Yeah. Okay, and and it was like all. Uh, <sighs> I was in there with the the lightest record. <laughs> okay, that's my point. It's like going to jail. Did you learn all the tricks from the other people? No, I was terrified. I was scared of everybody there. You know what I mean? I was like, oh my God, these people are all like actual criminals. <laughs> and so they have to decide when you get out or was a month set up in advance? I think you were supposed to come to some like um, 
moment of clarity, but I don't know that I did. But I think you were supposed to come to some like, I'm a changed kid or <laughs> like I'm a new boy or whatever, you know, I got something like that. You know what I mean? Okay. okay. Like, and so when you went back, did you go back on the straight and narrow? No. So when I went back, I went to a private school and um, my mom was the, was the dean of admissions or assistant dean of admissions at the private school. So it was very interesting in the way that like if I ever got in trouble there, I would just go to my mom's office. And that's like about a hundred million times worse than going to the actual. Oh, office. I can imagine. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so that got me on the straight and narrow in a weird way because it was just like your mom's just like at school with you. <laughs> okay, so you graduate from that school and you actually go to college for a while. I did. I went to DePaul University for a little okay, bit. Okay, how long did you actually go? I went for – so I, I, no, so when I graduated, I went to um, Columbia in Chicago. Right. And then I transferred to DePaul and I went there for – Well, how long did you go to Columbia for? Like six months, maybe okay. something like that, and then I went to DePaul for I think maybe a year or a year and a half. Okay, did you fit in in, in DePaul? I did. I think that like uh, in in colleges in in bigger colleges, it was a little bit like the movie Higher Learning. You can find your like your group. Well, I went easier. to a small college. I stood out. And I came to LA. I found you know a million people just like me. Right. So you can find like if you're at a if I think if you're in a big enough place, you can find your group and kind of find like-minded people. And I actually liked like, I liked like the, the, the basketball players there. Like there was a lot of people there that like, I think I would not have <coughs> probably come across or like, you know, like had interactions with that, that because I was there, I did. And I liked a lot of the people, but we were doing the band at the same time. So it was like, okay. So why did you drop out? We were doing the band. We were doing fall out boy. And it was, we were do the way we did the band at the time was like, it's so weird. Like, you know, I talked to my manager about it now and he's like, this is so bizarre you did it. But like, we would basically be like, well, what did like Molly Crew and those bands right. do back in the day? And it was like, they wheat pasted flyers and like stuff like that. So we were like on roofs, like wheat pasting flyers, which was something that like no one did at the time, you right. know what I mean, at all. And so it was just like, it's, I think that maybe stood out a little bit. Um, but we were doing about like 40 hours of like, work 40 plus hours of work in the band and then you were going to school for you know 30 so, 40 hours so how did it end at school uh my my parents said i could take a year off to see ah. how the band went you know what i mean i've yeah and so that's this that is the year the i'm in the year okay so you're playing the bass you're playing in punk bands at what point do you say wow this could be a real direction this is what i want to do like as like live on it yeah um that came super, 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 super late. Because uh, our band's trajectory was like really bizarrely slow. You know, like it's like the eight-year overnight right, sensation or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, no, so I was like, we were playing in it, but we were like, and we were like doing the band full-time, but we lived in our parents' basements and stuff. And right. we were just on tour in a van and like we didn't have label support. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like- Okay, let's go back. You're in yeah. the punk band- What's the evolution there to Fall Out Boy? We were just in like a million different bands, and I think that we- Getting paid for gigs? I mean, paid in like pizza or whatever. You know what I mean? Like right, not you're not enough. making any money. It's fun. No, it's fun. And- um, Are you good with girls at that age or you bad? I was just like fine, I think. Not okay, well, yeah. this you're playing the bass in a band. You're playing all these gigs. I figured that must do well for you romantically in an era when that's very important. 
I don't think I don't think it was like the band wasn't like cool. You know what I mean? It was like a dorky punk band. You know, okay, they were dorky okay. punk bands. Okay, so, so the dorky punk bands. How does that evolve into Fallout Boy? We actually wanted to. I think we when we the in, the inception of Fallout Boy was like we wanted to do. Um, it's funny because I think we got in these heavier bands that we took really seriously before like so we went from these punk bands we got into these heavier bands that we took super super seriously like a heavier like metal what? yeah metal hardcore that kind right. of stuff and we wanted to just be in these like heavy bands that we like kind of like okay. looked up to um and that was like a, a grind you know what i mean like because you're screaming and you're you know like it was just kind of thankless i think unless you're in one of those big bands, it's a little thankless and you just do it over, night in, night out. So we wanted to do something that was just fun on the side and that's what Fall Out Boy was. Okay. And, but it was different people originally, right? It was all the same people except for the drummer was different. Yeah. Okay. So they were all, and was everybody agreeing that this would be a good thing to do? Agreeing that it would be a fun thing to do. I don't think okay, that like Okay, well, this is almost yeah. like Clayton Christensen, you know, the innovator's dilemma. You have a disruption. At what point do you realize that's more successful than the screamo thing? Oh, man. That's a good... Um, you know, I guess at the point when you're playing... We were playing shows in Chicago, and, well, first it became that our friends... More than just our friends were coming to the shows. It wasn't just people we were like begging right. to come to the shows and this is like pre really the internet wasn't what the internet is now right you know what i mean so like this is what 99 yeah 2000 okay. 2001 but like it just wasn't like there was like chat rooms and like email lists and there was message boards but they weren't really what they are now right you know what i mean and so we it's turned from more than just our friends coming to shows to the fire marshal showing up at like every show that we played in Chicago and being like, this show shut down. There's too many people. How, how many people crazy. was that? It would be like, we would be in like a Knights of Columbus hall that fit like 200 people. And we would try to put like 700 people in it. Okay. You know what I mean? And it would okay, be like, okay. and, and every show got shut down. Okay. How much do you think was word of mouth? And how much do you think was, was sheer elbow grease with your promotion with, with the flyers and all the uh, pasting up the, everything. People always ask this, you know, like they're like, how much of it, you know, how much do we need to go on tour versus how much do we, you know, like need to be in the studio and how much, you know, is, you know, and I think you have to do it all and to me, you know, like I think there is an intangible, like when the four of us are on stage, it's for some reason different than when one of us does a different band right. or something like that for whatever reason that is. But I do think that, you know, like if you're not going to get up tomorrow morning and go and do the radio interview, someone else is going to go do it. You know what I mean? Like there is like something to be said for like, this is, you need to be ambitious and go out and- And do you and still do feel that today, 20 years later? Sure. It's in a different way, but yeah, absolutely. What's the different way? Well, I don't think you can go write the same like punk record when you have like kids and you're debating whether they should be in like a Montessori school or not. Like, it's just like, it's not going to sound the same, but I do think- that's what like the Hella Mega tour, the stadium tour is to me. You know what I mean? Like it's like we wouldn't do that unless we were there was an ambition to be in a stadium. Okay, let's talk specifically about the music. Obviously, you have your well-known tracks that the audience wants to hear. Right. In today's era, though you have a very loyal fan base, how do you feel not making the record but playing that stuff live and how much do you want to play live? Oh, that's a good question. Um 
I think for a band like us, it's like uh, our our thing has always, or our attempt has always been to create a culture. And so I don't think that just sitting at home will be, you know, in the sandbox will really work, you know, the sandbox in the living room. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, I mean, like, <coughs> playing live becomes different and, like, how much, how many of the songs... Are you playing like we're playing a seventy-minute set in stadiums, and so we got to like figure out what that would be and what songs we should be playing. But um, we're, I think we're our band is really interesting in the way that like we have one foot kind of like the the music business is probably has the biggest chasm that it's ever had in my in my time of being alive between the old business and the new business. And our band is a band that's like got a foot in both, right. or like has seen both a little bit, you know. So it's it's interesting and like. You know, like some people will be like, you know, like you guys should only do singles or, you know, like the album doesn't matter. And it's like for us, it's like we're kind of like all over the place. And I think we have to do what makes the most sense authentically. And I think that that's like that will be the only payoff for us. I think chasing a thing or whatever, like won't it won't work. OK, but most acts in general. Yeah. OK, they have assuming they have hits, they have their hit period. And then they're encased in amber, and <laughs> they just basically play those hits till nobody wants to right. see them anymore to ever decreasing right. crowds. Right. So I was talking to Pete Tong, and he talked about it in terms of DJs, and he says, "Well, you need to reinvent yourself." Yes. Do you feel that at all with Fall Boy? A hundred percent. Yeah, and it's really it's a it's an interesting time, or it's interesting in the way that like when you've been doing anything for twenty years, how do you have inspiration that's different than you had 20 years ago when you were probably hungrier and you wanted it more and you were you'd never done it before you know um yeah because i mean you have what uh a lifetime to, to write your first song exactly. or whatever it is you know what i mean and and to me it's like that's why we worked with we worked with this kid burner boy from lagos on the last record like i just think you have to kind of like uh go outside your comfort zone in order to find new things. There's just a fine line in the way that like, there's a difference between us going and working with Burner Boy uh, and writing a song with him than like me feeling extreme anxiety to have an account on like TikTok. You know what I mean? Like I think there's a difference. One like feels like natural and something that like is pushing us to do something that's beyond ourselves and the other one feels like you could end up being like the the old guy that's trying desperately to be well you know, as you we're know. uh i don't know to what degree you follow this stuff but justin bieber tried to juice his spotify numbers. Right. uh how do you feel about that I don't think that Justin needs to do that. To me, well, like, I, you know, the yeah. funny the record came in at number two. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. But like to me, I'm like Justin's like a a a big star, a big super super famous, super talented. If you like watch him, I don't think he needs to. You know what I mean? Like I don't think he. I, I well, in think, the heydays of indie promotion, to, to me that to me doing that is like beneath him. To me. You know what That's I mean? That's my question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go back. So you're in college. By time you drop out, you take that one year, what is the status of the band? We were playing this place in uh, in Chicago. We were headlining finally this place called the Metro in Chicago, which I think is 1,200 capacity maybe or something like that, maybe more, maybe 1,500. But we were headlining it. I remember we uh, – I looked up. My parents were like in a you know a, the balcony or whatever – 
and there was like these floating um dildo balloons that were like six <laughs> feet big right and i remember th- i remember i remember throwing one at my mom in the balcony and watching her like stomp this <laughs> thing into kind of oblivion and it was like there was like a moment where it was like i think she's gonna like let me keep doing this you know what i mean I'm okay you played that. the metro do you remember what the payday was oh man i have no idea there was uh the metro i think at the time before that, there was like they would give a lot of a lot of tickets away. So I think this was a, actually a hard ticket, but I'm not sure, and I don't remember what the payday was. I can't imagine it was crazy. You had the dildo balloons. Well, how much other production in the antics did you have in the show? We had a backdrop, which was like a big deal um, because we I think right. had weren't able to hang our backdrop on tours before that, and that was it. That was the production. Okay, so is that the turning point in your mind? Say this could really work. That was a turning point where I was like, my parents are going to let me do it. Uh, the trajectory was so slow that like, you know, I remember we were approached by a couple of management companies. They all seemed terrible. Um, uh, and we were approached, we, we, we reached out to one. We, I think we reached out to crush who became our managers and, they were kind of like, yeah, we just like, you guys just do what you do. Cause we kind of had these shows where we would just play super fast and okay, smash okay. our stuff. And right. Okay. So the crush was the first manager you ever had. They were. Yeah. So before that, who was the business guy in the band? You're, I, you're talking to him. I think that's what I think. <laughs> I wanted you to admit it though. But the funny thing is usually it's the drummer. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. okay. So you're making all the deals. You're getting the gigs, et cetera. Oh yeah. And this is like the times where like, so I remember we played, we were supposed to play, in Baltimore at this tiny club in Baltimore and we drove in, got to the club and there was like a sign on the door that said the show wasn't happening because there was snow or something like that. But there was just, cell phones weren't really what they are and, right. and the internet isn't like what we were talking about. It wasn't what, what it was. So it was like figuring this stuff out as like your own booking agent was not super easy. Okay. At that point, how much were you working and how broad was your territory? Well, we started in Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago, and we played kind of any show that we could. We would jump on stage and play on other people's equipment. <clears throat> From there, I think we played Detroit, and then we played Cleveland, and then Indianapolis. And then we would just we just begged for tours, and we couldn't really get tours. This band Punchline took us out graciously super early, uh, kind of everywhere with them, which was awesome, this band. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, getting ahead to when... I don't know. We, we we ended up signing to a record label, and uh, uh, from there, this band Less Than Jake took us on tour a bunch. Okay. Less Than Jake is still working, right? They are. Yeah, yeah, Okay. So, when you drop out of college, yeah. I assume you're like 20 years old. Yeah, like 21 maybe. Okay. How long after that did you get the record deal? Maybe a year later. And this was a deal with an indie. You know what I mean? No, that's so it was, like, was yeah. there any, I don't know. I know that. Was there any money? Oh, man. We had an upstream, they had an upstream deal with with Island, but I don't think it, it didn't do anything on the LP that we put out. So it wasn't, there wasn't really money. Okay. And who recorded, who produced it? Uh, we had this guy named Sean O'Keefe that we really liked. That was a local hero that recorded the whole the whole album. So how long did it take you to make that album? I want to say this is a time when it took about. Okay, so standard would be that it would take us three months to make an album, but right. this one we couldn't afford anything. Of course. So like, 
there was a time when we were so we were working at the studio called Smart Studio uh, in Madison where they recorded some of Nirvana and some garbage and um, garbage the band not garbage right. uh, and. We couldn't afford anything, so we they would get us like a, a a case of Sprite and a case of Coke every week, and we were like, instead of this case of Coke and Sprite, can you just get us uh, bread and peanut butter and jelly? Because <laughs> we just didn't have any money, um, and we were sleeping on floors. Um, yeah, we kind of like people were like, well, is there like you know like why are these the songs in the record? It was like these are the only songs we had, and these are the only songs we could afford okay. to record. So, what is the big break? Uh, the big break is, so we signed to Fuel by Ramen, an indie record label. Okay, how did that happen? Uh, this guy named John Janik. Right, who uh, now runs Interscope. Yeah, he, he called us up and was like, I want to do your- So he found you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he- and I have a book, not a book, but I could make a book, a coffee table book of rejection letters from every indie label on the planet. Okay, so you were working it. Had you worked Fuel by Ramen? We'd sent them a- uh, we sent them a yeah we sent them a demo yeah yeah, yeah. but we but, didn't really we sent but he them was everyone. not responding to the demo he heard about you otherwise he otherwise. must have heard about us from like mp3.com or something okay. like that yeah yeah okay so he were there any moments before Janet called you we said oh this is going to be the moment but it turned out it wasn't there were other labels that I really wished we'd I really wanted to sign to um and they just didn't we just didn't sign us. Okay, so Janik calls you and you say yes. He called us and was like, "I'm, you know, John Janik, and 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 I run this label with uh, Vinny from Less Than Jake, and these are the other bands that are on the label, and this is the thing." And we were like, "What is this? Like a ska label? We don't <laughs> like really know what's going on." But he was so excited and he was so uh, about magnifying our vision that it seemed right. Um, and so, yeah, we, we signed to this little label from, uh, Gainesville, uh, Florida. Okay. But you ultimately went to Island. So was this a one record deal? How did you work it out? It was, a it was, a, a one record deal with an option. They could pick up the option with, uh, for how many records? Oh, so I don't know if we, I think, you know, at the, when we, when we upstreamed, I'm sure either we renegotiated before that record or renegotiated after that record for like five or six albums. Okay. You know, something so like that. does Fuel by Ramen still get a piece of all those records? I don't know how their exact money works, but I would guess that they got a piece of John got a piece of like futures or something like that on our next two right. records or something like that. But I'm gonna assume it all probably had to change when Fuel by Ramen became a part of Atlantic Records. I okay. think that, that it probably had to be because I don't think Island wants to send them. Okay, money. when you make the deal with uh, Fuel by Ramen, you have a real music lawyer. <laughs> uh, we did, yeah, yeah. I think we 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 have the uh, we have the same lawyer. I would think. I don't really know. Um, but yeah, we had a real music lawyer because Crush was smart about that. I would. Think. So okay, you were with Crush before you were with Janik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They helped us. They were pretty instrumental in getting us there. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so the record comes out. What is the moment you realize this is going to break? Well, that record, I was like, it's not going to break. It felt good. It was good. It was really big underground. We were that band that like every kid knew and no adult knew. You know what I mean? Like we were the most famous band with kids and no adults. Like we were not famous at all. You know what I mean? Like you walk down the street and you could not, we couldn't open a Taco Bell. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, and then, um, we signed to Island. Uh, we had the song sugar. We're going down, uh, on a record called from under the cork tree. We basically were like, we want to do a video for this song. We didn't get any airplay. We got no ads, nothing. Right. Uh, we did a video for this song, Sugar, We're Going Down. We wanted to do a video that just... All the videos we were pitched were like, party in the backyard, the kids are hanging out, they fall in the pool, like something, you know, whatever. And it was like, these videos are not going to be good. And so we had one video that wasn't like that. It was uh, Or one um, treatment that wasn't like that. And we got... It was like a dear boy, and it was so bizarre. And so we did that, and our fans were were into it, and they basically ran it up TRL. And then once it was on TRL, like this is the way it worked at the time, I guess. And so right. like it ran up on TRL, and then it what got added to radio. Again? This was probably 2003, maybe right. 2004, and it got added to radio, and then got crossed, and that kind of stuff. Okay, the time. yeah. How did you handle that, you personally? Uh, before the record came out, I was like, oh my God, is this thing going to be all over because we're on the precipice of something either really big or very small. Um, and then, yeah. And then it was like going zero to like light speed, you know what I mean? And it was, it was, it was, it was strange because 
I don't even know how I handled it because it was all so compressed. Like, you know, like it was so many things happened in such a little amount of well, time. Well, I would say first there must have been excitement when you realized it was happening. Yeah, but like I think I'm one of those people that's always like, maybe is it really happening kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah, so even after it was happening, so at this late date, do you have a feeling that maybe it could all disappear? Now? Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling that we could go on stage and nobody would care. Or nobody would be there, for sure. Every uh, time okay. before we go on stage. Let's just assume for the sake of discussion, you never go on the road again. You got enough money to get to the end? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. So let's go back. The band breaks. Suddenly you become this big entrepreneur. Okay? You're signing other acts, whatever. How does that start? I always thought of the band and every all of it as like something bigger. Like the thing that I always liked about like punk rock music was it was like, it was a world, you know, right. I mean, like you create a world and, you know, like Billy Joel and Metallica and all these artists that I really love, Kanye now, like all these artists I love created like something that was bigger that you could kind of like go there, you right. know what I mean? And so that's what I always thought of it as. And so there was merch but it all felt cohesive to me like the thing that i like the thing i've always felt about like the label and and the bands that i've signed is that like the thing that people like the most about seinfeld is they walk into each other's apartments you know what i mean like kramer could walk in at any time like it's cool that like they that jerry like them individual individually are interesting but it's really interesting that they're all friends with each other right and that's what i always thought about like the the bands you know what i mean okay so, how did you decide that you were going to have your own label and sign bands? Uh, I first heard this band, Gym Class Heroes, and thought it was super clever and didn't fit in anywhere. And I took it to my label, uh, to my to Island at the time, and and I think they were kind of like, mm, I don't, this doesn't make any sense, and like, why would you have a sign a band? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, well, that's not going to work. Uh, and so I went back and I called Janik. And he was Janik is 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 very 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 good at betting on horses, and he's very good at like um, like I said, magnifying a vision. You know what I mean? And so he he and he understood all the stuff that I didn't like understand. Like he was like, "We're gonna do an end cap here," and like this is what the you know what I mean? And I was like, "I don't really like I don't want to be I don't I don't care about that part of right. it really." You know what I mean? I might care about it more than other guys in bands, but I don't really care about it. And so he was like, yeah, let's sign them together. And so we signed Gym Class Heroes. And then the guys in uh, Panic! at the Disco, um, Ryan at the time, one of the guitarists in the band was kind of like, he was like, your band sucks to me. And it was like, and I was like, what? What is this kid saying? And, right, right. and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, check out my band. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to go check this band out. And I'm going to come back here and tell this guy how bad his band is. And... Uh, because it was just a human reaction. Um, and I went and listened, and I was like, this band is like maybe one of the best bands I've ever heard. And um, Were they called Panic at the Disco then? We were, they were, they were. And how? Yeah. what What were they doing? Could they tour? No, no, no. They couldn't even play some of these songs. They never played live, so they couldn't <laughs> even play. They were. I went to their rehearsal space in Vegas, and they were like, I was like, play this song. And they were like, we can't even play it. We don't even know how, <laughs> like, we don't even know how to play it. Right. Um I remember going to to Brendan, the singer's house. He was 17 or 18, 17. He was young. And I was supposed to talk to his parents, right? And I was supposed to tell him that, like, don't worry. It's going to be all going to be okay. Like, you What know, year are we in? 
this is maybe 2006, 2005. You're not even 30 yourself. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> and I'm like sitting here and I remember walking into the house and looking and on the on the table, his family's Mormon, and on the table there was a book that said Santa and the Christ Child. <laughs> and I remember in my head being like, I'm fucked. I was like, I am fucked. I have no I'm in so far over my head right now, I have no idea what to tell these people. And we figured it out. <laughs> okay, you signed these acts. How much did you have to do with the making and records and marketing them? I really care about the marketing because I think marketing uh, when done right, can be part cohesive with the 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 art. You know what I mean? I think that you, when 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 marketing is done well, it feels like it's all part of the same thing. Like it feels like you're like, oh my god, this is like uh, it doesn't it doesn't it's not jarring because it feels like you're part of it. When marketing is done poorly, it is like the worst thing on the planet, and it feels like you're like, well, why are they doing that? This doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel Barnum and now, Bailey. Now, when you're talking marketing, you're you're not talking like end caps. You're talking more like events, the, and events, other- and the big vision, and like what is the story we're trying to tell, and like what can we do that's going to be uh, counterintuitive, and what can we do that like no one else is doing uh, at the time. Um, yeah, and I think that like my goal with the bands has always been to a like the thing the best thing that I learned from John was to magnify people's vision and like and then to tell people to try and tell people like you can make any decisions that you want to make because this is your journey and it's going to be different than my journey but like if you go down and and close this door or open this door, these doors over here will close probably. And my, it's been my experience that like right now you think that like the only thing that matters is through this door, but like all these doors that are like way further ahead in the journey will be closed because of this decision. And like it's, I think that trying to be someone's coach and big brother and and cheerleader has been like the most important part of that and like nurturing that and making okay. and hoping that people aren't going to make the like big mistakes okay if this late date are you signing bands oh yeah yeah i mean i'm trying to <laughs> i mean it's different now because like okay so when we were signing those bands at the time you know n- there's no major labels cared about any of it and um social media wasn't what it is like the people that were on social media it's just not like now it's like every people like that's their jobs you know whatever i think that like between like when us the our, the label and crush and the team is working really well together we're very very good at taking somebody from zero to eighty thousand units or whatever you want to d- d- determine the units by I think major labels are really good like when you need to pour gas on that and you need terrestrial radio or whatever but like I don't think that I think that they are particularly not suited for going 0 to 80,000 and I think that now because streaming is what it is and it's more about having bandwidth than anything else that like you sign everything cuz it's like it doesn't cost you any money and like you're getting paid based on the amount of you know the pie you're selling or the amount of pie people are listening to you know and so people are being signed now like before like so the our biggest problem at the time was that like people were in bad management situations and that like sometimes was like a a, a really 
made it difficult. You know what I mean? Like when you were signed in and you were signed to a bad manager and the manager wanted to do, just had like bad ideas and you were in a bad deal and there's no way you were ever going to make money. That was tough. Now, I mean, major labels just sign bands and artists way smaller than I think they would and should. So what's the last band you signed? We signed this kid, uh, Nothing Nowhere. Um, He's the first of the SoundCloud rappers, I guess, to really go into the... You know, I did that deal with um, Fuel by Ramen and Atlantic, uh, and and he's like the first of the SoundCloud rappers to, at the time, do a bigger deal. And Okay, so at this point, you also had a storefront where you sold shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's dormant at this point? It is, yeah, yeah. That was in Chicago. It just was super expensive and didn't really make a lot of money, but it was a fun clubhouse to hang out at. Okay. And then, but also online, you were selling stuff too, yeah, right? Yeah, still, But you're still doing that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do like a jewelry clothing line online. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but didn't you have a deal with one of the major, uh, uh, with another company to sell your stuff in their store? Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. I've done those, a couple of those deals and over so, time, I guess. Yeah, you don't you're not smiling. No, I'm I think that any of these things any I I've learned a lot in the ways that like so we did a bar for a long time. So we did a bar where we had one in New York, we had one in LA, we had one in Chicago, one in Barcelona. And basically it was like we started this bar because we would go to clubs and they would like let me and the band in, but they wouldn't let any of our other like goofy friends in. And we were like, we just want to go somewhere to hang out. Um, but you learn a lot about like how much you want to manage things and how, like whether you want to be deciding every night, like you need something happening every night in a bar and you want to, if you want to be micromanaging that. And if you're not going to be micromanaging it is like finding a partner that understands the markets. And I think that that's the same thing as like, if you do a licensing deal or if you do, uh, clothing and, you know, like more and more I meet, you know, aspiring, um, musicians who want to do all these different things, which is cool. Like a lot of them are really cool and a lot of them are really big already, you know, or whatever. Um, but I think you have to be, you got to be careful like who your partners are. You know what I mean? I think you have to work with people that you know are going to be honest with you. And I don't know. Like, I mean, I've never had a um, a written contract with Crush. I think, you know, I remember like JD told me like, I don't, I don't ever want to be in court uh with somebody that I work with. And, and that's like the thing that makes the most sense to me is that like, you have to find partners that like where you understand each other and you understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and you try to fill in those cracks. So how did the bar end? Oh man. So the bar, so the one that we had in New York was basically like this tiny, tiny, tiny bar in, in alphabet city. And it was impossible to get a drink when it was filled. And we had great karaoke there but basically they would send like a 20 year old undercover police officer like once a year and would, you know, like, right. It's so hard. I, I Listen, I'm not carding at the door, but like, obviously like the tabloid headline it, acts like it, that right. I am, you know, but right. like a, a $30,000 ticket can put you out of business when you're a bar that small. You know what I mean? So did you wake up? And it up? never became my bar until it was like in, in the tabloid headline when it was like served to an underage cop, it was my bar. But like, otherwise it wasn't <laughs> okay so what do you think of the tabloids and uh and social media discussion today um 
I mean, I think that people are able to use social media in a way that uh, you're able to respond to things that are, you know, like you're able to like, like I follow Kim Kardashian and she's able to like respond and be like, that's not true. This is true. Like, this is actually what happened. You know, like Kanye didn't fall off a horse at Sunday service. That's not real or whatever, you know, like in a way that I guess you couldn't have before. Um, And I think that like, it's interesting because there's like a whole lot of people it's just like again, there's like the the chasm so big between like the the people who are like living old like mystery and people who are like like the new age who film everything. You know, what right. I mean, like there's just like a big divide between them. You know, what I mean, that's clearly like a generational divide. You know, I lived next to uh, I used to live next to YouTubers. Um, they were the nicest people that I think that I've ever had as neighbors, but like you would go you go to their house and they film like absolutely everything you know what right I mean? well you know most youtubers burn out because they got to have to create that content satiate their audience on a regular basis but you were tabloid fodder when you were married to ashley simpson totally so how did what was that experience like um it's very difficult to it's i think it's really hard to navigate life when there's constantly headlines of people being like, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're not doing that. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's until you realize that, like, you just want to, you're just going to be who you are. You know what I mean? Like, and it doesn't really matter if people take pictures of you, like, picking your nose or whatever it is. Like, you just have to, once you come to terms with that, then I think it's all right. It's interesting. Like, I listened to um, Leonardo and, and I don't, I'm not, close enough with him to call him leo i think but uh and and brad pitt talking and they were just talking about how like he was talking about how like you know his friends always find like you know like try to find ways to game the thing where they'll have they'll he'll, they'll say like you put on i'll put on your hat and i'll put on the sunglasses and i'll walk out you know or whatever and he's like it just never works and it's like it 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 doesn't you know what i mean like i think that like uh that relentless interest in what entertainers or whoever do like you know like is is like like i had a guy yesterday who asked me like what my opinion on like the royals leaving the thing right. and i was like i haven't even really like ever thought about this <laughs> and i don't know why anybody would want my opinion on it because i just like have never even really well he's never, waiting for you to say something outrageous he yeah, can blow up. i'm sure you know what i mean um it's just it's yeah it, it it's 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 super 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 bizarre like it doesn't it feels like you're in a simulation or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel real life. Okay. So at this late stage, you've achieved so much, but is there a dream beyond this? Oh man, there's always dreams. There's like, you know, I remember our band, uh, this is a dream, an unachieved dream that I don't think we can, that I don't think we can achieve, but it was, this is the way that I think in our band things is that I, remember being late at night and I was like, I want to be the first band to play on every continent or on all five continents. Email it to my manager. He goes, it's great. There's seven continents, but like, (laughs) I I usually think six. Now they do say seven. It's crazy. Uh, and, um, so we went and we took, uh, we went and played in Chile and then we took a trip to the, the southernmost point of Chile, which is called, uh, Punta Arenas. And we basically stayed in this town. Um, waiting to fly to Antarctica. And like we were taking a C-130 or something to Antarctica, but it was, the runway was never clear because we came at the very last time you could really fly to Antarctica. And we were in this town 
in this hotel and like the last interesting thing that had kind of happened there was like sheep or something so we were like we were like the beatles our hotel was surrounded 24 7 with people like freaking out and now how many people live there i think we had the whole town outside of us you know what i mean like it was actually it was just it was big because there was nothing else you know what i mean um and we didn't end up we didn't end up being able to make the we didn't end up actually being able to ever fly to to Antarctica and we never were the first band. I think Metallica ended up doing it. Uh, yeah, Metallica did go to Antarctica. So they did the they were you know but like I think to me things like that are are interesting like the playing places that we've never been and. Uh, like that's what's interesting and like being and learning from the cultures and being able to like infuse that back into the music and like that's what's interesting those are like the like i mean the stadium tour um like these things are all like okay but you're a multifaceted guy do what do you see yourself you see yourself as a bass player a lyric writer member of a band uh a and r guy how do you see yourself what's the most important thing to you oh what's my the most important thing to me um Besides my family, um, you know, I, I always talk to my manager, JD, uh, and I think that, you know, we talked about like how his book or my book would be titled like My Proximity to Greatness. And it's like, I just really like being around people and like pouring the gasoline on their thing and like seeing their thing happen and be a part of it. You know what I mean? And especially when it's like, something that nobody ever thought was going to happen. You know what I mean? Or like it came out of nowhere. And that's like the most exciting to me. And like seeing like, you know, Brendan, you know, backflipping with like Taylor Swift on a, you know, like, I'm like, oh my God, like, is this happening? Like this right. kid was like in, you know, like I was looking at Santa and the Christ child at his house, <laughs> like thinking like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? You know what I mean? Like, so those, th that's for sure the most exciting thing to me is like the, rooting for the underdog and when the underdog like gets a hit in you know what i mean like that's the by far the most interesting okay you pretty much have access to anything your name big enough oh. opens every door or not oh no i don't think so i think that like so like it, man it's so funny because i think the access keeps changing as you go up you know what i mean like we played you know uh uh president obama's inaugural ball and and who and, booked that Oh, book that. I mean, I guess it probably went through CAA. You know? No, I mean, how did they oh, decide, how did they decide that? He has seven balls. The president right. has seven balls, and there was a youth ball. And at the youth ball, I guess they probably, I don't know. I don't know what the algorithm is, but they got us, Usher, and Kanye. Okay. Uh, and, you know, like, we were, we were at the, we were there, and they were like, there's all kinds of things. They were like, we put a carpet over the presidential seal because nobody steps on the seal. You know what I mean? At all. You know <laughs> okay, what I mean? Okay, okay. I and didn't I was know like, that. this blows my mind. You know what I mean? There's <laughs> all these things, you know, whatever. And we were standing there, and then, you know, President Obama's standing there, standing on the seal. And I was like, well, I guess, like, if, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so there is a level. Yeah, so there's like levels of all of it. You know what I mean? And they were kind of like, they were like, when POTUS is in the building, they were like, if your base breaks, if your tech needs to run out, don't run out. They were like, that's not, you are a, a target if that happens. You know what I mean? Like, and it was like, oh, so there's like these points of access that are beyond all of it. You know what I mean? Okay, well, that's President of the United States, especially now in the era of internet cacophony. We have Trump, everybody knows, and everybody else is trying to get known. Right. But if you wanted to reach Obama, could you? 
Okay, I have my answer. Yeah. Okay, anybody in the entertainment business, your name opened the door anywhere? I mean, is there anywhere that you can't go or whatever, or you'd have to use your connections? Oh, that I, I'd have to use my connections? Maybe. There's people that, like, in my phone that I, like, I yeah, I have Drake in my phone as a number, as a name, to make sure that if I'm overserved at a restaurant, that I don't accidentally, or not accidentally, text him and say, like, dude, you're the best fucking lyricist of all time. Like, because I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Okay, so who are you, the type of guy who hangs with famous people? The people that I think are famous, or like that, that are famous to me, because I grew, I'm telling you, I'm the guy that collected right. all like my 80s toys and stuff like that. I want to meet like Mr. T and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. I guess what I'm asking is, certainly when you move up the ranks, yeah. okay, forget what the hoi polloi thinks. Oh, you know, these are famous people. These people, it's like they say, why do rock stars marry models? Because they have the same schedule. They right. get up at noon, go to bed at four right. in the morning. Right, right, right. They don't have regular commitments. Right, right. So as you get closer and closer to the belly of the beast, you find other like-minded people. Right, right. And so there are some people, despite that, who were still singular. Supposedly Fred Astaire, you know, drove in the limo alone. Then there are other people, Lars being an example. He knows everybody and hangs with everybody. I love hanging with everybody. I love meeting. I do believe in meeting your heroes or people that you think are cool. And if you don't like them, then that's cool. You just learn something about them that doesn't change the, the music or the movie to me. Uh, but I think that there are levels of access that are beyond. You know what I mean? Like, I think that, like, um, you can hang with these, like, so, like, you know, like, you go to parties that there's, like, tech guys at, like, the billionaire tech guys or whatever. Like, they're not giving me access to invest when they invest in companies. They're not calling me up and being like, listen, we got right, this right. group together. We're the A group. And like, this is what we get. Like, I don't get that call. Like, right. I don't have that access. And I don't know what that, if that access comes with money or if that access comes with success within tech or whatever it is. I mean, I, I definitely can call any of those guys and probably go to like Katsuya with them. But like, <laughs> right. it's, it's like a different level of access to me. You know what I mean? Like I don't, when I go and pitch something, I don't even really want to pitch something to somebody who can't green light it in the room. Like if you, oh, if, you know I, I mean? I, if the guy can't make the decision, I don't want to talk to him. Right. It's not, it's just not really worth like th this town is, is a town where everybody takes meetings about everything and nothing ever happens. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Makes me crazy. Okay. So what do you think about the music today? The, like, what do I think about how it sounds or what do no, I think? No, no, we're in an era. I mean, this bring, this goes into the other element that I referenced earlier. One, if you go to streaming, Spotify Top 50, generally speaking, all hip hop, right. a little pop. Yes. Okay. And even though there are outlets for other sounds, they have a fraction of the mind share. Yes. And we can also say a fraction of the plays, but it gets so complicated and not yes. break there. Then in addition, many people, uh, you referenced this a little bit earlier, they're really interested in becoming a brand. Yes. The music is just a vehicle to sell shit, become famous, et cetera. Yes. So irrelevant of the music itself, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that it's all of these things have always existed whether it was people who put billboards up of themselves or their movies or whatever it's just now we have like more of a window into these people actually doing it in real time and we've seen people 
who found success doing that, you know, or doing quote unquote nothing, you know what I mean? Like, so we've seen it. So it, you know that it's attainable. So I think people think that they can, they can do it as well. I mean, it does feel like at some point, some of that bubble will burst and people will be known for some of their talents um, more so. And I think that the people, listen, I think that like, whatever it is, whatever reality show it is, and I like all this stuff, I watch all this stuff, but whatever reality show it is or whatever tech game it is or whatever thing it is, like no one, when you get your heart broken, you don't go and go like, well, thank God I opened that app because I always, you know, like that helped me or like when you have the best day of your life, you're still watching films and listening to songs and you know what I mean? Like those are the things that I think that like you set your life by, like these big moments in your life by. Um I think that there's room for all of it. I do think we live in a hip hop world. I mean, I think you're crazy if you don't think that. Um, I go to my kid's school and every kid is trying to be Kanye fresh. You know what I mean? And I, I see see that happening in real time. I think that there's, the pie is super, super, super big. So there's room for really all of it. You know what I mean? Like I think that- But it's very hard to get noticed. Yes. So getting noticed now, this is the thing that I think with getting noticed now is that you have to be- Unashamed. I had these kids come up to me in a parking lot uh, the other day in, in Van Nuys at the Van Nuys laser tag. And they came up to me in the parking lot and they were like, listen to this thing. I listened to it. And I liked it. And we ended up having to talk. And I think you have to be, oh, you have to be cool with doing that. You know what I mean? Like you have to go up to people and like get them to notice you. Um, but I also think that it's super, super important to be true to who you are. Like chasing well, just doesn't work. Okay. But let's, work. Okay. Let's assume they give the tape to you, the CD, yep. the whatever, the yep. file, and you think it's good. Yes. You and me both know there's occasional thing you hear. We go, this is stratospheric. Right. I heard it once. This is going to go. It's right. just about assembling the team. Right. But I listen to like XMU on the satellite or I'll go through playlists on Spotify. And I say, well, that's pretty good. But unless someone puts some gasoline on it, chances are I could be the only person who heard it. So let's just assume you have a team together, okay? And you're, uh, forget hip-hop. It's a world unto itself. And other kind of music. How do you set about getting yourself noticed? By uh, a label or by the world at large? World at large. I think you have to, you have to do, you have to, be making great music. You have to make great songs. And I think that still great songs can stand on their own. Like you look, and if you don't have great songs, then I don't know. It's a different right, story. Right, right. Of course. But like, if you look at a band like fun, uh, or you, you know, like there's these bands that come along and you're like, it's great. You know what I mean? It's for whatever reason, like it's great. It feels like a different era, but it feels kind of like right. this era at the same time. Um, and I don't, and I don't, if you don't have greatness, then there's going to be, and and besides the greatness, there's so much of like, is that you have to be ready to swing the bat when you step up to the plate. Like when you get a chance to step up to the plate. There's you so many deliver. people. Yeah. There's so many people that like, they're waiting for their chance, waiting for their chance to get their chance and they don't do it. You know what I mean? Like you They have, don't do it because they're reluctant or they fuck up. They fuck up or they're scared or they, they second guess themselves and are, they're so nervous about like their friends are like that's selling out. And so they do the wrong, you know, like there's so many versions of it, you know, that, and I feel like I've seen so many versions of it. Um, 
the truth is, is it's super hard. Like it's more democratic than ever because everybody can make music and there's so much out there. It's so hard. Like how does music last anymore? How do things stay? You know what I mean? How do things, they have to be either really great or really terrible to say. And even if they're really terrible, they kind of go away. You know what I mean? To stay, it has to be so great. And it has well, to- Well, the other thing is even the most, the biggest people on the chart, fewer people know them than ever before. Yes, it's harder to get mind share at large, unless you're literally president. Something else, which is well publicized, so I'm going to ask you about it. Supposedly, you're bipolar. Is that true? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I I was diagnosed years ago. Um, yeah, and it's something that, like, for a long time, I tried to self medicate, um, and that didn't really work out that well. You know what I mean? Like, I think I went into the I think that I went into the idea that like I didn't need talk therapy and I could just figure it out on my own and I could use either alcohol or pills and I could kind of figure it out, you know, and I was on tour and I didn't want to like suppress the creativity and that kind of thing. Um, but I think since having kids, I kind of wanted to be, I want, well, I wanted to be present and I wanted to um, be able to like, kid around and not be kind of ruled by my moods and, you know, and, and, and at the same time also be like, it's okay for you to like, feel not great. You know what I mean? Like it's okay. Any of this stuff is okay. It's all. Um, and so, I mean, since then I've found ways to have like, you know, like to, to do therapy and to talk and to know that like, just because you're feeling better, it's not going to like stifle your creativity, that kind of thing. What is the uh, number one thing or two things you learned in therapy? Uh, the therapy never ends, really. That you're tell never, my girlfriend because yeah. we're still going. <laughs> yeah, that you're never cured. You know right. what I mean? Like you just—it's not. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that the other thing that I learned, um, but it's harder to apply, is that you got to be kind to yourself. It's—it's it's hard to be. I think that. Well, give me an example of being mean to yourself. Oh, being too hard on yourself, whether you're doing like little, like whether it's like little things as far as like when you're playing a sport or something and you're like, I suck and like, I won't be good. Or like my, you know, my band's not signed or whatever it is, you know, like all the, you know, like I think that people are not particularly kind to themselves because we live in a world where you, we live in a really fake world. You know what I mean? Like where people think that everybody else's life is awesome and you feel super FOMO about everything and it's not real. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's not real. I promise. Like all these people everybody in my phone and everybody like all these people have like bad days. And I do really respect that. Like people like Kid Cudi and, and Kanye and whoever, like uh, Jay-Z like have spoken, you know, like it, it, aside from the really young rappers have like spoken out and, and talked about like the, the idea that like everybody kind of has like this, that mental health is something that everybody deals with. Cause I think that's, it's really important and we can still live like these aspirational lives, but like there's no, like if you're not whole before you go into it, it's not going to fill the hole. You know what I mean? Like it's not going to, there's not like well, a magic. Well, I have a whole theory about that. Yeah. That a lot of, you know, going back to the pre-social media era, you have a lot of guys who were not, who were socially awkward and they felt if they wrote hit songs, their lives would work. And when they found out it didn't make their lives work, they couldn't write any more hit songs. Oh, for sure. I mean, and for sure it doesn't make you... It doesn't like you're, it's like, there's a, you know, I'm like a, I'm like a total movie geek, you know, or whatever, more than anything. And, uh, you know, like there's a moment in Empire Strikes Back where like Luke's like, 
going in this like cave of darkness or whatever and he's like do i need my lightsaber and yoda's like you only bring what you you take in with you you know what i mean you don't need it basically and he brings it in anyway and then fights a version of himself spoiler alert whatever but it's true in life you know what i mean like it's like there's none of these like when you come out the other side like you, you you'll have different experiences but i don't think you like it doesn't it doesn't fill the hole like you got to figure that out on your own you know what i mean and do you take medication now I don't take medication now, but I do a, a, a lot of therapy. <laughs> okay, as someone who does a lot of therapy themselves, how much therapy is that? Uh, probably twice a week. Okay. Yeah. How long with the same person? Uh, five years now, four years now maybe. And does your wife go too? She does not. No, no, no. She, she is probably the uh, of the more level people that – and I don't know, whatever. People are on their own. No, but I argue is sometimes you're interacting in a relationship right. and you've gained these insights in therapy. Are you ever frustrated that your wife doesn't have the same insights? Um, mm, I mean, I think in arguments you get frustrated about everything, but I, I think that there's like a danger in like being like, I've, I've read this or I learned oh, this. Oh, you, you can't know? say yeah, that. Yeah. We know, but I'm interacting, forget significant right. others. And you see people acting that a certain way and go, Holy shit, if they had a little therapy, they'd never act that way and it would work out better for them. I think I see stuff where people f are freaking out about the wrong thing all the time. Like um like you'll be people will be like you like mad they're broke cuz they spent all their money on the shoes, but like they want the b people to think they live in the baller house, but they're spending the money on the shoes. So they're never going to get to the baller house. And like, I'm always like, I mean, that's just like one specific thing, but like sometimes it, it feels like if you work through things in therapy, you can see like the bigger picture for yourself. You know right. what I mean? Um, yeah. Cause I mean, it can be, otherwise it's like super frustrating it feels like you're going through life and you don't like, you don't see like it's, you're in the matrix, you know, and there's other people who are like seeing all the numbers and you're just not seeing it. And I've definitely felt like I've been on both sides of that. Okay, Pete, this has, been this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for sitting here, telling me all your stories, being so open. <laughs> Thanks, man. Okay, till next time, this is Bob Left Sense. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. 
even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm -hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.